Hi everybody, I'm Raj. I'm Ashwin. And this is Blood Cancer Talks. Uh, today we are very excited to talk about minimal residual disease or measurable residual disease in multiple myeloma. Uh, we have an expert with us, Dr. Luciano Costa, who is a professor of medicine at the University of Alabama O'Neill Comprehensive Cancer Center. So before we jump in, Dr. Costa, can you tell us about yourself and your clinical and research focus? Uh, hi, uh, Raj. Hi, Ashwin. Uh, thanks for having me on your uh, on your podcast. It's really a uh, joy to meet you and talk about uh, a theme that is uh, very close to our heart, which is MRD. Uh, uh, yeah, as you said, I'm uh, currently a professor of medicine here at UAB. I have been here for eight years. I've been in the U.S. for near 20 years now, initially for training in Colorado and then in bone marrow transplant at Mayo. I started my career at the Medical University of South Carolina, uh, doing quite a bit of myeloma, but also other um, mostly lymphoid malignancies. And I really had the opportunity uh, to f- focus in uh, plasma cell disorders and help build a program since joining UAB for, uh, you know, in 2014. We have a very broad myeloma interest. Um, we have, but, but a lot of our uh, clinical trial uh, activity is uh, naturally in relapsed refractory disease, cellular therapy, uh, immunotherapy in general. But I all have de- also have developed a, a very vibrant interest in minimal residual disease and having had the, per- the opportunity to participate in trials uh, with MRD uh, guided therapy. Sounds good. Yeah, you you have been truly a thought leader in the field of MRD in myeloma. So um, as um, as you all know, MRD has been a hot topic in myeloma lately. And when we think about MRD and its clinical utility for you know clinicians at bedside or for clinical researchers, we predominantly conceptualize it in terms of either using it as a biomarker for prognosis or as a guide for treatment modification, for example, treatment escalation or de-escalation based on MRD status. And finally, as a health policy researcher, as a surrogate endpoint for drug development. So um, for the episode today, we will broadly divide the episode into these three categories to discuss, you know, touch upon each of them. And we, we would love to get your thoughts on these topics. So first of all, can you give us maybe a broad overview on the different methodologies um, that we can use for testing MRD in myeloma that are available currently? Yes, uh, I mean the, the list is uh, is a big uh, and, and ever growing list. But I really uh, I think for 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 practical reasons, I think we got to focus on two platforms, which is flow cytometry and NGS. So they're both uh, cell based uh, platforms. So we're 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 essentially working out of cancer cells. So that means they require a marrow. A test or sample of the bone marrow of the patient. Flow cytometry, of course, is a, I think is a, a more broadly uh, well-known, understood technology uh, that is based on the detection of antigens, normal or otherwise, both in the surface and the cytoplasm of cells using really a technology that is available at any uh, any major laboratory at any academic institution. They're and really based on uh, detection of plasma cells that you know would uh, uh, would be expressing only kappa or lambda according to the clonality of the disease, as well as the expression of some uh, uh, surface markers that are not usually expressed in normal plasma cells. And next generation sequencing is uh, it does not use intact cells. Essentially, you know, takes the sample is based and um, do uh, essentially deep sequencing for the heavy and light chain immunoglobulin 
and and come up with a with a profile of all the sequences. And that test really, which makes it a little bit cumbersome, is the test really start with a sample that is known to have tumor, you know, usually a diagnostic sample. And when you do the sequencing of the heavy and light chains of globulin, you got a, a bunch of different sequences. And by definition, clonality means the same cell that is multiplied many times over. So it will be some sequence that are going to appear a disproportional number of times. And then you accept, that that's the premise of the test, that a sequence that appears disproportionately on that initial sample is linked to the clone. And then once you treat the patient and repeat the marrow to then survey for MRD, then you're using very powerful bioinformatics, you look for those chronogenic sequences so you can identify and quantify. So the, 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 the differences are uh, not only methodological, but also very practical, as you pointed out, the you know flow cytometry. The I'd like to joke that the best, uh, the biggest advantage of the, the flow cytometry is, the, is also the biggest disadvantage that it's available nearly everywhere. That that uh, can be an, a competitive advantage because you can you know do your marrow uh, and uh, have the MRD read on the same day or the day after. Also, it does not require uh, an initial sample. So that observation of the cells being cloned are now kind of stand on its own. We don't have to have a, 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 a untreated sample for comparison. It requires a large volume of bone marrow. So to have a good, to be able to detect disease at a very low level, uh, you really, is not you, you cannot run any flow cytometry approach. You have to run a very specific uh a combination of software and analytical algorithm called Euroflow that gives you a sensitivity of about two times 10 to minus six uh, on a good sample on a good day. And that requires your, your lab to be running and validated to run that specific uh, uh, algorithm. And that requires a, a lot of bone marrow. That requires, uh, you know, 20 times 10 to the, to the six cells, so 20 million cells, which usually takes quite a bit of an aspirate. So next generation sequence is not available, at least at present time, at every institution. So that could be a hindrance, but also uh, an advantage because you essentially are forced to go to a central lab. So, so you have the assurance that uh, your sample, your report means the same thing in the report of the paper that you read because it was done by the same lab in the same uh, circumstances. And uh, NGS, uh, of course, the sensitivity and the uh, the analytical characteristics depend on the input is optimized to up to uh, 20 picograms of, uh, of DNA. And at that level gives you a limit of detection that is slightly under 10 to minus six. So it's a very sensitive test and you can achieve that uh, with just two to three mLs of bone marrow um, aspirate. Uh, the turnaround time, it's longer. It takes at least a week. Uh, it requires that initial sample to have that ID test done at least once. And of course, it's, it's expensive. It's a lot more expensive than, than flow cytometry. The practical or, or regulatory advantage is, you know, NGS is the only, uh, in one particular platform, is the only test that has gone through the motions of receive the endorsement, if you will, of the FDA. Uh, so it's a test that you can more easily deploy for uh, decision-making in clinical trials. Yeah, so uh, is it fair to say that for flow to achieve a sensitivity of 10 power minus six, we need about 20 million cells 
Whereas for NGS, I believe only about 2 million cells and we, we can achieve the same sensitivity. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that is correct. I mean, the uh, in, the, in the NGS is based on uh, amount of DNA, but you're right that 20 micrograms is about 2, 3 million cells, Sounds which good. is more easily obtained on a, on a marrow aspirin. So one, one other question, Dr. Costa, is uh, when we read papers on MRD, there are certain terms that come up, including the limit of detection and the limit of quantification. Can you please explain what those terms mean and what is the current expert consensus in the myeloma community regarding the minimal acceptable limit of detection? So that's a that's a great uh, that's a great question and uh, and those terms are very important but at the same time I, they're not part of our vocabulary you know we clinicians or even we um, you know myeloma investigators who have a foot in the lab that's not a kind of concept that we used to think of at any time so the best way to think of this is uh, you know is, is to think of that as somebody in a, running an assay in the lab to detect uh, let's say you know, alcohol in the blood or something like that, right? Uh, the, 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 the closest to pure chemistry, you, you make this, the easier it is to kind of understand this concept. There is a concept that we didn't talk about, which is the limit of blank, and uh, which is kind of, the, kind of the smallest amount of the analyte that cannot be distinguished from zero. And in this, in this test is zero. So there's no such a thing as, uh, as having the, the, the abnormal sequence on the NGS and not being able to, to, to be distinguished. So with that, the limit of detection is the minimal amount that can be separated from the, lim from the limit of blank. And that varies uh, according to the test, of course. In NGS, because the platform has underwent, uh, did undergo the analytical validation for the FDA, we know with 20 micrograms that, that the number is about seven times 10 to minus seven. Now, it's very intuitive, however, that the closer you get from the limit of detection, the less precision you're going to have during an estimate, right? So if you're, if you're, if you're making a call uh, because you have like one single cell with that particular sequence out of 3 million, you're not going to be very certain, uh, just using pure statistics, of how frequent that, that uh, is present on the sample. So the closer you get from the limit of detection, the less precision you have on your estimate. So the limit of quantification is okay. Let's just, let's let's say we need seventy percent precision. We can tolerate a seventy percent uh, uh, coefficient of variation on my estimate. Where do I get that level of precision? And and for example, for NGS, that happens to be one point eight times ten to minus six. Of course, if you're more stringent with your limit of uh, with your definition of, of acceptable variation, then you give a higher value uh, and so forth. But those are not necessarily intuitive concepts, but they're important to understand as we further the discussion of MRD myeloma. Sounds good. So basically, from what you are saying, this is the limit of blank is the deepest, then the limit of detection, and then limit of quantification. And the, the 10 to the power minus 6 that we talk about in the NGS reports, so that is the limit of quantification, right? That's what they report on the sample, on, on the com commercial test that we sent to Adaptive. Yeah, so the limit of quantification, uh, the, the test is optimized to up 20 uh, micrograms of DNA, and at that, uh, the limit of quantification is uh, 1.8 times 10 to minus 6. Okay. But the limit of detection is 7 times 10 to minus 7. In, in other words, um, if you have uh, 
you know, uh, one selling out of uh, 1.3 millions, you are likely to detect. But you know, if you take a, if you think of that as if you have a uh, a suspension of sales, uh, when you have one one event on ever uh, 1.3 million, and you take three million at a time, you may get one, you may get three, you may get none. Right? There's not a lot of precision on that on that range. Yeah. So, you know, as you know, myeloma can present sometimes with patchy involvement or even at extramedullary sites, especially at relapse. So uh, do you think imaging is also an important part of MRD? And if so, you know, which imaging do you, if you had both available, would you prefer PET-CT or whole body diffusion weighted MRI in addition to the bone marrow for MRD assessment? So, Raj, this is a great question. And the the, the presence of extramedullary disease is, uh, is, you know, properly so often mentioned as one of the main limitations of marrow-based MRD, and I do not disagree with that. There are, however, a few uh, counter-arguments to that. Um, now, from the pragmatic standpoint, uh, in the empirical observation, there's no doubt that if you're using MRD to discern prognosis, the uh, addition of uh, image modality uh, greatly uh, improves. So, of course, if you are Called MRD negative, image negative, it tend to have a better prognosis than you are if you're MRD negative, image positive. The reality is on the few data sets where uh, those two things were done, uh, there's quite a bit of concordance. Uh, the, the, the discordance is not that, um, that, uh, that great. We know that myeloma tends to be a macrofocal disease at times, and you can have a, you can have a, a, a place in the bone marrow that is essentially a plasmacytoma, and you have areas where you have you do a marrow, you have ten percent plasma cells. And but when you you know, and that's important. But we got to think about this from the uh, from the from the sensitivity of those tests. We look, we, do, we, we look we talk about tests that can accurately quantify disease on a span of four five logs. Right, so would that difference from like, hey, here is eighty percent, and here is ten percent, is that really meaningful? Right, is that going to be really cause you to to miss disease uh, to begin with? The other point is uh, pragmatic, and I have heard, uh, you know, Jesus and Miguel uh, and Bruno Paiva, people who I really uh, consider, you know, worldwide authorities in my MRD, make this point, which I agree with, is. Say what you want about limitations, there are many, but you, get, you, you take a cohort of patients, treat it with a certain therapy, and you assess MRD, one-time MRD, that automatically becomes the most powerful prognosticator how that patient's going to do going forward, right? It's not perfect, right? And I, I'm out for a week seeking out perfection. You know, it would be great to have a test that is an absolute guarantee of success or an absolute guarantee of failure so we can intervene. But such tests do not exist in myeloma. It does not exist in any disease, as a matter of fact, right? Including the ones that we very successfully treat and very successfully have incorporated MRD as part of the treatment uh, plans, such as, as, you know, CML in, in adults or pediatric ALL. So, uh, you know, without the caveats, it's still the most powerful prognosticator we have for somebody who is uh, properly treated. So I think we risk in myeloma, like, uh, you know, losing the or or stalling on the good in pursuit of the perfect, you know? 
Uh, and I think we're missing out a bunch of opportunities because we keep dwelling on, well, but there's that one patient on that one trial that was MRD negative and progressed. Uh, and no trust is going to be perfect. Now, um, what time of image? I don't know. I'm not, uh, I don't consider that to be an expertise of mine. And I have seen data very compelling about both technologies. Um, I understand, perhaps wrongly so, but I understand that uh, the, the MRI to be a little bit more tricky to interpret, uh, a lot more uh, expertise dependent. So I'll, I'll confess that we tend to use to rely more on PET because that's more broadly available. It's more intuitive to us clinicians and uh, maybe it doesn't require as much ex uh, the same type of expertise as diffusion weight MRI, but I have seen very compelling arguments that MRI may do just as, uh, as well. Yeah, so you made, I think, a great point, which, you know, I also have heard, you know, and, and I think it's really a great point that maybe in the era of morphology, this patchy or extramedullary disease may have been important, but now in the era of like testing, when we are talking about sensitivity 10 per minus six, maybe this argument is not as compelling that you have patchy disease or extramedullary disease because, you know, how likely it is that there is large burden of extramedullary myeloma, but there is not even one cell in a, in 10 million or a million in, in the bone marrow. So yeah, that, that's a compelling argument. The, the one other point I was going to make is I, I, um, I think the discrepancy between imaging and marrow-based MRD is likely to be very context dependent. Um, we all know that as myeloma evolves through its natural history and multiple therapies and relapses and so forth, you start to have more extra medullar disease. You start to have more patches. I'm now that we do a lot of trials for triple class refractory myeloma, a lot of CAR T cell trials. You know, I I'm surprised, and then we end up doing a lot more marrows that where before you say here's progression number seven. Let's just give you another regimen. And now we do a marrow on those folks. I'm surprised by how many times I see a marrow that is like, yeah, hypocellular, no plasma cells, you know, in a patient who has raging myeloma, uh, now, uh, you know, triple class refractory evolving rapidly because the disease is out patchy. So, you know, I, 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 I do, although I do respect and, and pay attention to MRD data in relapse setting, I think where we got to solve the newly diagnosed setting first, right? Because that's our biggest opportunity to make an impact. That's our biggest opportunity to deploy MRD to de-escalate therapy, right? And I think those problems are likely to be much less uh, prevalent uh, in earlier lines than they are in, in, um, in multi-refractory setting. Thanks, Dr. Costa. Now, switching gears, uh, let's first talk about MRD as a dynamic prognostic biomarker in myeloma. Is there a prognostic impact of MRD on PFS, which is progression-free survival and overall survival over about traditional criteria we use according to IMWG? So that's a great question. And I think that's the you know one you're going to find least uh, amount of, um, of controversy among myeloma investigators and myeloma doctors. And the answer seems crystal clear. I mean, and that has been shown in multiple, uh, tr you know, clinical trials. They were retrospectively analyzed on uh, in on the up on the light of, under the light of MRD, but also in some well done uh, large meta analysis. And MRD is 
a strong prognosticator of both progression-free survival and overall survival. This has been shown in newly diagnosed and in the relapse setting. This has been shown with NGS. This has been shown with flow cytometry. Uh, this has been shown with standard risk disease and in high risk disease. This has been shown with a threshold of 10 to minus 4, 10 to minus 5, and to 10 to minus 6. Okay. So the question of, uh, you know, uh, is MRD uh, uh, prognosticating myeloma? I think that is abundantly and satisfactorily answered. Um, I would take one step further and say, uh, you know, MRD is the strongest prognosticator uh, in multiple myeloma. When you, and there are a few uh, data sets that where that has been done. If you take a patient at a certain milestone of therapy, let's say post-transplant or post-consolidation, the MRD information uh, has a uh, ha has a simple positive negative has a far greater impact on prognosis than any other traditional prognostic factor, including ISS, including uh, uh, fish profile uh, as a term at the time of the diagnosis. So I think any any attempt that we might have of treating myeloma differently based on the on the risk. Uh, that, to, in my opinion, has to include uh, MRD. Now we have, uh, I think, is 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 human nature, and um, and I think it's sort of our intellectual bias that we accept things that are older as being true, um, and uh, and and that's the case with IMWG uh, classification, right? Uh, which is uh, which is a very cumbersome multi-parameter assessment of response that involves urine, involves blood, multiple testing, a bone marrow, morphology, flea light chain. And and if you if you if you hold those that combination of tests to the same standard at MRD, it does not hold much water. Uh, it's not a very powerful uh, predictor of, of prognosis. And there's now at least uh, there are a couple of data sets, but uh, one that I, uh, I show every time I have the opportunity from the Spanish group showing that when you account for MRD, okay, when you take people who are uh, in complete response with MRD negative, that group does extremely well, but the, everybody else, CRs, MRD positive, PRs, VGPR, they do about the same, okay? So if you want to be, if you if you if you if you arrive on Earth from Mars and you're not being, you're not and you are you are relatively smart, and you are not being contaminated by or in a, in a and I say contaminated in a very respectful way, but you're not like us who have grown up uh, digesting the paradigms of uh, protein base classification. And you look at that survivor curve, you're going to say, hey, there's three types of people here, right? Non-responders, responders, and MRD negative responders. So if you want to look objectively at of response and its impact on prognosis, I only see, you know, three groups. So which I, which I always joke that is sobering and, and I would say emotionally devastated for our staff that spends uh, our data managers spend a lot of time, you know, deciphers is a VGPR or a PR, does this meet criteria for CR or is just a VGPR in order to report clinical trials, in order to report it to transplant registry. 
and we're essentially dissecting things that may not matter when you when when analyzed under the optics of MRD. Yeah, I really like the classification of no responders, responders, and MRD negative responders. And I will link to our show notes, but there was a recently a really nice paper by uh, Dr. Bruno Paiva in Blood. Um, like the title of the paper was that does CR really matter in the era of MRD? And I really like that paper. And in, in that, I think he showed some of these data sets. I think in the interest of time, I'll go over to MRD as a tool for treatment modification because I wanted to spend some time on, on master trial. So we will start the discussion, you know, of the of master trial, which was, you know, led by yourself, you, uh, which in my opinion is one of the most innovative trials in myeloma in the last decade. So for the audience, I'll just give a brief overview of the master trials. So it was a multi-center, single arm, phase two trial, where patients received four cycles of DARA KRD induction, then a single high-dose melphalon autologous transplant, and then there were two phases of DARA-KRD consolidation, each phase having four cycles. And MRD was measured by NGS using the adaptive clonoseq assay, and it was measured at the post-induction time point, that is after four cycles of DARA-KRD, then was measured again at post-transplant, and then post-consolidation time points. And <laughs> patients who were MRD negative by at 10 to the power minus five by Clonoseq at two consecutive time points, not one, but two consecutive time points could go on to a treatment-free observation and MRD surveillance phase, so-called as MRD shore. So technically, I think the earliest time point a patient could go completely off treatment would be post-transplant if they are MRD negative at post-induction and again at post-transplant. So with that background, first of all, I wanted to ask you what inspired you to design this trial, given that, you know, all the trials in myeloma in the past decade, at least has been continuous therapy. Yeah. So th that was, I, I think, uh, you know, on a, on a personal level, I think the, the story behind this, this trial is, is more interesting than the trial itself, but it really, uh, this really came out around uh, uh, 2015, 2016-ish. Um, and you, you might recall that was like when monoclonal antibodies were about to hit, uh, they were, you know, we're seeing the first data in uh, phase one, uh, phase two trials. Um, and also the MRD revolution was kind of starting to happen. So it was really, uh, you know, we essentially a collaboration among friends and different institutions and we got this, uh, and I, I can you can argue you can have that at any time in myeloma. We got this really this really strong feeling that there's something really big about to happen in myeloma, right? There's several potentially revolutionary things that are just uh, a few steps away. So why don't we let, why don't we try bold and then we 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 dilute down if needed, okay? But let's start as bold as we can. And, uh, and yeah, so, I mean, we, we, we you know, we, uh, at that point, we're trying to understand the MRD, but it ultimately it's going to be uh, mostly helpful if we can identify patients amenable uh, to less therapy. And uh, so the idea was, well, we need to, at some point, uh, if, if those regs are going to cure somebody, we're only going to be able to recognize if we can stop therapy. So let's have a path to stop therapy. Uh, let's combine now the the uh, the most active agents that we perceive in each class. Uh, we didn't want to drop transplant quite yet because the data to this date is that's the most uh, impactful modality in reducing uh, disease burden that we have and drive people into MRD negativity. Uh, so that's pretty much kind of how it shaped out without getting too much into the weeds, but uh, was there really a challenge because that precedes the FDA endorsement of uh, NGS uh, as a platform. So 
when we went to the FDA to do the trial, the FDA say, well, you're going to treat patients based on this assay. So you need to file uh, investigational device exam, um, which you need to provide all this uh, very detailed analytical data about the, the assay, which at that time was not in the public domain because uh, clinical had not been uh, submitted. So we had to work uh, with our colleagues in, in Adaptive, which was uh, was a great experience, on a kind of a three-way coordination with the FDA, where we where we would re cross-reference their package without looking at their package. So I, I say, as hard as it was, I said that gives you the you know an assurance that you're doing something that is pioneer because you know the fact that you are doing it means that nobody has done before, right? Uh, which is to be able to deploy the technology to change the, to change therapy. So that was kind of the uh, that was kind of the the frame on how this uh, this was uh, this uh, was developing, and has been as 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 challenges has been you know gratifying. Thanks, Dr. Costa. Can you give us a brief overview of the top line results of this fantastic trial? Yeah. So what we found for this study is that uh, using that approach, um, the majority of patients, about seventy percent of the patients achieved the milestone of two consecutive MRD below 10 to minus five and were able to stop therapy. Overall, a little bit over 80, I think it was overall 82% of the patients achieved MRD negative to 10 to minus five across the study. But about 70 uh, or 72% achieved that, it had that in two consecutive reads uh, to, uh, to be able to stop therapy. Yeah, and in the average, people uh, receive treatment for about a year. Um, so there are some patients who, uh, like Raj mentioned, uh, were already MRD negative pulse induction and then remain so after transplant were able to stop therapy. Some people who require four additional cycles and some people who require eight additional cycles. We um, choose to analyze the data by, in this trial, you know, unlike other trials for newly diagnosed myeloma transplant eligible. We did not have an age limit. So we had people way into their 70s. And we had a deliberate enrichment for high-risk disease. Uh, at some point, we stopped accruing standard-risk patients, only accrue high-risk patients. So we end up with a good representation of patients with one or two or more high-risk chromosome abnormalities. And as, we, as the data matures, what becomes clear is that both the standard and high-risk with one abnormality tend to do quite well. Uh, the vast majority, uh, 80 plus percent, uh, close to 90 percent of the patients with standard or high risk disease uh, remain so, remain in remission, MRD negative, two years uh, on, and going uh, after cessation of therapy. But the patients with uh, ultra high risk disease with two or more high risk abnormalities, so those are usually patients like 17P and 1Q amplification, for example. Uh, or 414 and 17P, but a lot of that was carried on by the 1Q amplification. Um, they might achieve uh, deep responses a little bit later, but ultimately at the same rate because you keep forcing that with more therapy. But then you see a few things that are very concerning. You see some of, the, of those patients, you know, with the caveat, there's only like 24 of those in the whole study, but some of those progress. You see the, it, you see the MRD burden go up while on quadruple therapy, okay? And those people don't take long to have a full-blown relapse. And, and I think you would guess it's very hard to treat. 
but also among the ones who reach MRD negativity uh, twice and are able to cease therapy, you have a, a higher rate of early uh, progressions um, among those patients. So I think the way, you know, don't want to overinterpret the data with not so many patients, but I think the, the message is, uh, you know, and I think that's going to be very interesting, the message. All right. The message is, I think the most important message will take home is, yes, there is a, this can be done, right, uh, to have an MRD response adaptive therapy in diagnosed myeloma. That's the most important thing. Uh, one, there's a pretty good path of, uh, of treatment cessation among those patients with standard or one high risk abnormalities. And uh, the overall survival in that group remains 100%. So the few relapses that have occurred, they are salvageable. Now, the, the how to look at the two plus group? It's uh, it's can be quite controversial, right? Uh, some of my uh, senior colleagues look at me and say, look at this data and say, I told you so. Those patients need continuous therapy, and I I'm not in a position to dispute that. But I really believe, and I think we're going to see some data very soon that's going to support that. That that is not the problem. And that's not the only problem. Uh, I think it's a little bit naive to us to think if you have a you know a high uh, a patient who receive now a transplant and eight cycles of KRD and then you stop therapy and two months later the patient progress that you would have uh, avoid that progression by continuing the same regimen. And the other reason I don't believe that is the problem is because you have some patients uh, with. Uh, you know, the worst and the hardest to treat relapses were people who relapsed on quadruple therapy. And we're going to see data very soon. Um, maybe it will be out by the time this podcast is out um, with the ASH abstracts coming this uh, week, is that on the griefing study that people remain on therapy, you know, with, with, uh, with the doublet, we see exactly the same behavior. And we recently saw data from the FORTA trial, you know, where half the patients remain on, on carfilzomib and lenalidomide, the other half in lenalidomide. Uh, among the people who are MRD negative, the two plus high risk abnormality uh, is still did worse, it still had a higher rate of early progressions. So I think, uh, you know, it's very humbling. You know, if I, you know, I think, yes, I, I, I give it. Uh, that was not the, t- the group to, uh, to, 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 to uh, work on cessation of therapy yet. You know, it takes the trial to learn that. But I think it would be a disservice to interpret that. Oh, the problem is we need to continue therapy. I can guarantee you continue that same combination or the same agents are not going to do. So I think that's a population we need to identify early and intervene early with a different uh, therapeutic modality. If we want to try something new uh, to help those patients. Yeah, that that's very interesting. And I mean, uh, you know, we do in the in the double hit patients, we do see routinely that they, you know, even with Dara VRD, sometimes they progress before transplant. Like I recently had a patient who progressed at day 70 post-transplant, despite being in a CR pre-transplant. So yeah, we, we do see, you know, we do see these kind of early relapses. And Raj, one thing that uh, I think you, uh, you understand well, but I'm not sure it's on everybody's uh, uh, top of everybody's mind is as we get more of that, as we get more inclusive clinical trials, and as we get more powerful upfront regimen, we're going to learn more about those people. Because, you know, in the days when, let's say, if you go, um, let's say, if you look at the... Um, 
BMTCTN trial that had a randomization between, you know, consolidation versus uh, double transplant versus maintenance. Uh, I always blank on the name of the trial. Stamina. 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 Thank you. Uh, you know, all those bad, you know, not all, but a lot of those bad players, you know, are not represented on that trial. You know, you were enrolled in the trial by the time you get to transplant, right? So if you're early progressor, you know, uh, if you are, uh, if you don't respond to the induction therapy, or if you are, uh, you you deteriorate performance status, you have a toxic death, you are not on, uh, you're not represented, right? So, you know, and most people there got doublets uh, and some triplets. So ironically, you know, the, the best your induction is, the more you kick down the road and get to learn about how those people do in the relapse thing. So if you have a very not so great, you know, induction regimen, uh, and I and my starting point is, uh, you know, transplant, a lot of those bad players will be out of the picture by the time you get to run your study, right? Yeah. So uh, we gotta we gotta uh, look at that from that perspective. You know, patients who in the you know in in the you know there are patients on master that wouldn't you know would never be on Griffith because you know they couldn't afford two or three weeks of screening uh, without uh, without even high dose dexamethasone, right? And in on master we allow one cycle of VCD, so there are people who are in the hospital with renal failure. I'll get us and and playlist of forty thousand. We give a cycle VCD, they get better. We enroll in master. So we got to learn more about those patients, which I think is ultimately a good thing, but it caused that part of the data to be not so great. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. So um, the other thing I wanted to ask is that: Do you think you know the the PFS would have been superior if you had an MRD threshold of ten to the power minus six at two time points instead of minus five? Or do you think that wouldn't have made much of a difference? So that's a great question, right? Right. I think uh, uh, probably so, right? And, and I, I, I like to make this point. There's nothing magic about MRD. Uh, we, we, I see people debate about, you know, level of uh, threshold. And, it, it, you know, again, if somebody comes from Mars, from Mars is going to think we're crazy. We're debating is, is less cancer better than more cancer? Yes, less cancer is better than more cancer. The problem is, as you know, it's practical. Um, uh, and uh, and uh, and I hate to be that guy, but there is uh, there is a reality that we have to live with. Uh, and I think there's uh, and I think is is kind of ju well justified is that the we the FDA has a has a has published a guidance to industry using MRD for hematologic malignancy trials. And the, the their standard is, is pretty straightforward. They say yes, if you wanna if you wanna use MRD to adapt therapy, uh, do me two things. Uh, one is show the analytical validation in a convincing way, and then your threshold for decision making has to be tenfold your limit of detection, right? So uh, and and I kind of understand why because I took you know I just told you that. Uh, with if you have an MRD burden of 1.3, uh, you have 70% precision, right? So at one uh, times 10 to minus six, it's going to be you know, you know, all over the place, right? So yes, less cancer is good, but you want to be making decision on a flip of a coin, essentially, right? So that creates a practical necessity of uh, we setting that threshold at a higher level. So when we first 
work on um, on mass, and we had the exact same thought. We said, okay, we're going to stop a one measurement of 10 to minus 6, and I'm glad the FDA pushed back. So what we did was we trade depth for consistency. So say, okay, we're not, we can't, we're not, can now operate at 10 to minus 6, let's operate at 10 to minus 5, but let's require two measurements. And I think it was a very fortunate thing that we, we end up doing. Yes, I have no doubt the less cancer is going to be better. The, the, the deeper you put the cut, the more pure the population is going to be underneath. Uh, you know, it's going to be a higher proportion of those patients being the good prognosed ones, the perhaps cured ones. Uh, but there are uh, limit, technical limitations on doing that. So for prognosis, from what you're saying, for, from, for prognosis discussion with patients, we can go as deep as we want. But I think we need to be cautious when making that to, you know, decide our treatment, especially treatment escalation, because there is a possibility that we can harm patients if we make these treatment decisions based on very, very small amount of MRD. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say, yes. So, Luciano, can you give us a brief overview on the follow-up trial, the MASTER-2 trial, which, um, you know, you are currently working on and hopefully will be open soon? And what are the key questions that would be addressed by that study? Uh, thanks, Raj. That's a that's a great question, uh, and and thank you for uh, for your support and collaboration. Um, you're a very important part of uh, design, and hopefully soon to uh, executing that study. So uh, essentially, we're trying to build on some of the lessons learned from Master One, but also from the, you know from the, on the from the field of myeloma uh, in the last five years. And the uh, the tipping point or the the cornerstone of that study is to uh, take MRD at the end of uh, uh, a finite period of therapy and and pivot further questions around that information. So uh, patients will receive a six cycles of uh, quadruplet induction with DARA VRD, and we, then we assess MRD. Uh, for the patients who are MRD negative, we know that group does extremely well, uh, people who are MRD negative post-induction. And we're going to try to see if they can continue to do, uh, if we can pursue finite therapy, and if they continue to do well with omission of transplant. So it's a no inferiority question uh, on uh, continued therapy with transplant followed by a year of data rev, or uh, doing three more cycles of consolidation to, uh, with quadruple therapy to replace transplant followed by one year of uh, data rev. And MRD is again, taken before and after the one-year diarrhea, and if patients are negative and negative, you observe without uh, further therapy. For the group that stays MRD positive, uh, where we believe the, the, the bad players will be embedded in, uh, then we uh, decide not to omit transplant um, based on the data that the transplant is particularly impactful in this group of people. Um, and but one arm will receive a transplant followed by one year of data rev. Um, we consider that uh, uh, an acceptable standard. But the other arm uh, is going to receive teclistamab uh, data. So it's a, a bispecific anti-BCMA T cell engagement combination with ranolidomide uh, for three cycles that we call consolidation, and then followed by 12 cycles that we call maintenance. And the question here is a superiority question. Uh, can that approach with a bispecific increase the proportion of patients who achieve and maintain MRD for at least 12 months? And, um, you know, in, in, in other words, answer whether the bispecifics are at least 
for the time, you know, at least a, uh, a reasonable solution to the to those very uh, bar, bad players who tend to not achieve deep responses or achieve deep responses and progress despite continuation of the uh, other three or four agents. The part that is most exciting about this, um, I think those questions are very important, but we're trying, and that's part of why it's taking a little bit longer than I initially hoped, um, is we're trying to resource this trial with uh, a, a, a lot of uh, biomarkers uh, so we can understand you know, uh, different uh, 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 cellular populations in the bone marrow, in the blood compartment, not only throughout therapy, but also once you cease therapy. Um, because I think a lot of people in the field um, hypothesize that how you have, how your immune system recovers um, after therapy, it's going to be uh, important and uh, not only to you know, on preventing infections and so forth, uh, but also uh, with an interplay with, you know, with control of disease. So we hypothesize that, you know, immune profiling post-therapy may have a, a role on uh, on sustainability of MRD. So that part is going to take years to, to, to pan out, but I think that's incredibly important. And I think that, uh, you know, it's one of the trials that I think open up uh, a different uh, way of thinking. You know, we have we're we're now thinking about post therapy life in myeloma, uh, which is uh, something that we have never thought about because we have uh, so tightly embraced the notion of continuous therapy in this disease. Yeah, we are really excited to open this trial, hopefully next year. Um, then in the interest of time, we'll go to the final section um, of MRD as a surrogate endpoint for drug approvals, as well as for registrational trials in myeloma, especially in newly diagnosed and early relapse settings, where we know that trials take a long time to pan out, even with PFS as an endpoint. So, you know, I wanted to get your thoughts on this. As you know, you know, undoubtedly, there is very little controversy that at the individual patient level, MRD is prognostic of both PFS and overall survival. Um, however, an important question is whether it predicts clinically meaningful outcomes, just especially overall survival at trial level, which is a requirement for FDA to accept it as a validated surrogate endpoint. For example, uh, I think two or three year DFS and overall survival in adjuvant setting in colon cancer, which is an accepted surrogate endpoint. So I'm curious as to what are your thoughts on this and are there any updates from the iSquare team study that is trying to answer this yeah. question using multiple trial data? Yeah, so uh, right, this is a very important point. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of people come, uh, have the mis in, uh, misunderstanding, or at least seems to be as being me, my misunderstanding that, oh, the FDA uh, still do not recognize MRD in trials, so it cannot be a primary endpoint. That's not correct. You can have a primary endpoint being MRD. We and others have done that. That's not the problem. Um, well, we cannot use MRD in clinical trials to make treatment decisions. That's also not correct. I mean, you know, there are you know several trials now that uh, adapt therapy based on MRD, and there are several trials where the starting point is MRD positivity, for example, post transplant. So that's not the problem. Uh, it is, uh, and I think if we go uh, across other hemolignances, uh, since this is our topic. There are several instances where we took a prognostic factor and frame a clinical question around it and create evidence for that particular group. And the example that always comes to mind is, you know, PET2 in Hodgkin lymphoma. You know, we have, you know, nobody, to my knowledge, nobody has shown that PET2 is a surrogate 
um, in, in, the, in, the, in the form that FDA requires for drug development. But that doesn't keep you from saying, hey, it's a very prognostic, strong prognosticator, right? Right. So let's ask this question for PET2 negative and this question for PET2 positive. And I think that's what we suffer for a little bit of paralysis in myeloma because we could be doing this, you know, and we are starting to do that, but we could have been doing this a lot longer, but we have been stalling in this issue of surrogacy. As you pointed out, uh, the, 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 what the FDA point is, the FDA is in the business of approving drugs and, and new therapies. Uh, and they say, well, in order for me, to, and, and I'm going to do that on the basis of uh, clinical benefit, you know, overall survival, progression, fit survival, and so on. And for me to take a biomarker instead of that clinical benefit, I have you have to show surrogacy. And that means there is a mathematical correlation across trials between the amplitude, the magnitude of the impact on the biomarker and the clinical benefit. So this has been shown on follicular lymphoma uh, CR24, I believe, which is maintaining CR after four, 24 months, right? So you have shown that the greater the impact on that biomarker, the greater the impact in PFS across trials. And there's a semi, you know, a quasi-linear correlation between the, you know, the log of the hazard ratio, you know, or the odds ratio. So, uh, and now the FDA say, okay, you show this across trials. Now I'm going to take this. You can bring to me a, a, a package to approve a drug because it got more pathologic CRs or because got more CRs at, at two years in follicular lymphoma. And that is the, that's the, the standard that we haven't been able to meet in myeloma. I'm not particularly, I'm not uh, involved on, directly on um, on the I2 square. I think that was the multi-institutional, multi-pharma um, effort to generate such data in myeloma. Uh, I know that project is going on for a few years. Uh, I have not, I, I don't know the specifics, but I suspect the fact that we haven't seen that uh, materialize in several years probably speaks for the difficulties that we haven't really consistently generated data on the same platform with the same cutoff uh, or have the same type of follow-up, right? So I'm not sure if it will happen in myeloma. I'm not sure when it's going to happen. Uh, maybe we would have to have more trials uh, done with a consistent method uh, MRD methodology uh, with proper follow-up in order to generate such data. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there has been so much heterogeneity in the MRD in past uh, 10 years. And, you know, I really applaud you for the effort to write that consensus paper to harmonize how MRD is reported and analyzed. And uh, as you said, follow-up, I think, will be a key factor because especially for overall survival and newly diagnosed in RD relapse, I think we need 10, 15 years of follow-up at least to for that to materialize. Now, I was going to ask more of a practical question. Sure. And, uh, I think there is a subset of patients with myeloma who do well long-term despite being persistently MRD positive. Do you have concerns regarding such patients being over-treated if you have MRD as our sole focus? So, yeah, I think that's certainly a risk, right? Uh, I think, uh, you know, you know, myeloma is a very heterogeneous disease. Uh, and, uh, and of course, you have... Uh, uh, you have uh, the risk of over-treated and under-treated. But the alternative to that, Ashwin, is what we do now, which is develop therapies for myeloma, period. And that is guaranteed 
to overtrade some and is guaranteed to undertrade many more, right? So uh, any uh, any new tool that you introduce that will separate people somehow and ask specific questions is going to help you minimize both undertreatment and overtreatment, which is the reality now. When you have a disease where people stay, uh, there are people who stay in VGPR for, for 15 years without maintenance, and people who die in the first year of refractory disease, all in the same disease, you know, participate on the same trials, fitting the same treatment guidelines, you are sure to overtreat some and undertreat some more, right? Uh, there is never gonna, you know, there's never gonna be a perfect, um, uh, there's never gonna be a perfect prognosticator. Um, and there, there isn't such a thing as any disease, right? I can guarantee you there are CML patients who become uh, in molecular response and then progress and have accelerated phase and blastic phase. I, I guarantee you there are Hodgkin lymphoma patients who are PET2 negative that eventually progress uh, and you can keep uh, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and so I don't think that we're gonna pursue MRD negativity at all cost. Uh, those, any approach we have has to have a, a, a boundary of how much we do that. Uh, but I don't think that uh, that that argument can be used to to dismiss the necessity to use such a strong prognosticator into uh, defining populations uh, for, to whom we should ask different questions. Sounds good. Um, thanks a lot, Dr. Costa, for your time. I know you are extremely busy, and this was really awesome. And uh, we learned a lot about MRD, not only in myeloma, but thinking about MRD in general for heme malignancies. Uh, we look forward to having you back again, hopefully in the future, sometime in the podcast to discuss about more myeloma-related episodes. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity, and nice to see you guys. Thank you. Nice to see you. Thank you, Dr. Costa.